Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA, Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $196 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. With Thanksgiving right around the corner, we're entering one of my favorite times of the year. My beloved Kentucky Wildcats are back in the hard court and looking young but promising, but when not hosting these podcasts, I spend most of my time following the markets and the economy, and we're in the middle of outlook season, trying to determine what the next year will hold as we learn to manage through COVID. It's also a season of entertainment, and as a fan of Squid Game, I'm excited that today's podcast will be covering streaming as well as the money engine of the internet, digital advertising. To bring us current on all things digital, I'm thrilled to welcome back to the virtual booth, Erica Ferfaro, a portfolio analyst for the large cap growth team who previously served as ClearBridge Senior Media and Internet Analyst, and Mike Kagan, portfolio manager for the ClearBridge Appreciation Strategy. We'll discuss the rapidly expanding digital content ecosystem in today's podcast, Screen Kings, Who's Winning in Streaming and Digital Advertising. Erica? Mike, welcome back to the virtual booth. It's good to have you both here. Jeff, thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. Hopefully, we'll be able to do this live next year. I've been saying that for quite some time, and I I was thinking about it before the podcast here, that we've been doing virtual podcasts here for almost two years. It's crazy. It It doesn't seem like it was that long ago. I mean, time really does fly, doesn't it? And time also flies when I'm binge watching shows on Netflix. I mean... I watched Squid Game in three days, and I even titled my last blog Red Light, Green Light, for crying out loud. You know, obviously, it was a show that's uh, based uh, out of South Korea, and it really spotlights, you know, how far streaming has come with Netflix's global footprint. But it's not just me that likes Netflix and, and streaming. My, my family absolutely loves it. I will say we watch Cocomelon at least three or four hours a day, and when a new season of Cocomelon comes out, it's like Christmas hits the Schulze household early. And it brings me to a, a really important question in the streaming space. Obviously, it's a lot of the streaming that we do in our household, but has streaming become Netflix or and then everybody else? Mike, what do you think about that? Well, it's certainly when you look at the market shares right now, it looks like it's Netflix, Disney, and everybody else. So I think the real question that you're asking is, can Disney ever catch Netflix? And... Disney historically was always the great content creator. They came up with unbelievable movies time and again, then sold toys, merchandised, and built great franchises around it. Then they morphed a little bit, and they bought the Marvel franchise, which was at that point a little bit moribund, and they turned it around again, made great franchises out of it. And then they took Star Wars and they reinvigorated it some. And so there was, there was an interesting story, but now... Things have shifted, and the focus on content right now is on streaming and no longer just movies. So the current situation with streaming is it changes Disney's picture in two ways. First, it used to be Disney was the great content creator, and now Netflix is generating great content and winning new subs every day they come out with it. Second, while Disney will continue to create new movies and new content and to monetize that and get the benefit from the ancillary stuff from that 
it remains to be seen if they're actually going to win new subs for their streaming service with these new movies. The bear case on Disney is that there's a certain set of people out there who like what Disney does, and they're all subscribed. And certainly when you look at the stats on growth for subs for Disney lately, it gives that picture. So I think it's an open question. I am a Disney holder, but I do think that things are going to be challenging for Disney. It may be that the big dog is indeed Netflix. Erica, any any thoughts on the, the question? What's interesting, I think, about the streaming market is that Netflix is about a decade into its original strategy and the growth of its streaming product. And while it feels like the business is quite large already at approximately a little over 200 million subscribers projected by the end of the year, the business is only about 30% penetrated of the roughly 800 million homes that they say are addressable, which are broadband homes ex-China. So I think one thing to remember with the streaming market is we are still quite early in the evolution here. And so while it seems as if, I agree with Mike's point, it seems like as if it's Disney plus Netflix, there's still quite a bit of room for, for both of them to grow into this market as we evolve. The second point I will say, though, is that Netflix has weathered a lot of new launches in the last two years, not just Disney Plus, but there's a compelling product from HBO, HBO Max, and we've seen a number of other new products come to market. And Netflix, through all of that, even in its US most penetrate in the US, the most penetrated market for Netflix, has continued to be able to grow subscribers, has continued to grow engagement. And so I think the performance of Netflix's business over the last two years is a testament to the idea that it is a bit of Netflix plus everyone else. But as they say, it's still early days in this market. Now, you mentioned 800 million homes that are potentially available for subscribers. But one thing that I, I, I struck is really interesting is that Netflix is now free cash flow positive. You know, usually when the leader becomes free cash flow positive, it means that growth in that industry is going to go down a lot. I mean, what does that exactly say about the maturity of the, the streaming medium in general? I think Netflix reaching free cash flow positive and telling investors they expect to be free cash flow positive from 2022 and beyond is just a sign of the power of scale. Netflix is still investing tremendously into content. Their cash spend on content this year is expected to be about $17 billion, and that figure is going to continue to rise. What Netflix has proven the ability to do is to get more efficient on content spend. So we have seen their content amortization continue to show operating leverage driven by both subscriber growth and price increases, which have been well tolerated by the subscriber base. And Netflix also remains highly disciplined on marketing spend. So they're investing very heavily. Uh, They have shown the ability to drive operating efficiency into the business despite these heavy investments. But they've reached such a large mass of of subscribers that I think reaching free cash flow break even is more just a testament, as I said, to the to the power of scale, not necessarily maturity in the market. Now, Mike, you've mentioned Disney before, obviously a huge conglomerate, 
how crucial is streaming? We, not only Disney, and it seems like they plateaued a little bit, but the other big players like Comcast and then maybe some of the smaller content programmers who have added streaming services here recently, like HBO Max. I mean, how crucial is streaming to, to these different companies that are out there? I think that streaming is absolutely crucial to the small players. And I think that they lack the scale to compete with Disney and Netflix with new franchises. So it's always a risk with the small guys that they compete away the profit by bidding too much for streaming content like sports, which generates new content every day. So I think it's going to be a real challenge for the small guys, for, for the Disney's and the, and the Netflixes and, and the Amazons, they're going to be fine. The low guys probably have to consolidate up. Erica, any thoughts? I agree with Mike completely on this point. Streaming has become the strategic objective for every media company that's trying to expand its customer base or even just hold the existing customers that they have. We've seen a number of signs that that pressure to succeed is catalyzing consolidation. This goes back to Fox's sale of it's not sports properties to Disney. We can point more recently to the Discovery Time Warner merger. And I expect that we're going to continue to see things like this happen in the future with, with legacy media companies. Yeah, I've got to admit, I have, you know, probably five or six different streaming apps. You know, the only time that I watch regular television is for for sports games, which is getting more and more rare uh, with young children. But, you know, I, I guess maybe the thousand pound gorilla in the room, from my perspective, is the economy, right? I, I've been talking to our clients both internally and externally how I don't think we're going to see a really big disruptive winter wave of covid one of the reasons is to have another variant outcompete Delta. It needs to be more contagious and more vaccine resistant. I think that's a pretty high bogey. But also, I think next year's growth is going to be much more stable than what we've seen here over the last couple of years. As we enter into this final stage of reopening where kids are back at school, people are back at offices, and you have much more of a persistent engagement with the services side of the economy, whether it's traveling, going out to restaurants, or, or entertainment. So if we get back to you know, what was, you know, previously a, a pre-COVID existence with, you know, more interaction with services, does that take away the eyeballs from the streaming space? I mean, do, do you think that poses a, a major headwind to kind of the outlook that you guys are talking about? I think that it made things more challenging in 2021, because 2021 was a lot more open than 2020 was. And you also had really brutal comps. In 2020, you had an explosion in growth in the streaming services, all of them, in 2020. So while there's probably some headwind, I think it's actually less headwind next year than it is this year. So they probably actually see an acceleration in growth. I agree with that point, Mike. And I, the other thing that has, has hampered growth in 2021, besides just an engagement and subscriber pull forward into 2020, was that production of new content was delayed in 2020. A lot of, you couldn't be on site, you couldn't film new shows, you couldn't film new movies. And so the impact of that, those delays on content production in 2020 really were felt in 2021, just given the lead time to, to produce and, and do post-production work on, on, new, on new shows. So not only did we have the reopening headwinds in 2021, we had these this slate disruption also occur this year. I think we will have further reopenings in, in 2022, but 
to Mike's point, we should have, we, we know we have easier comps than we had last year. The content slate should be more normalized. Netflix has talked about that. Disney has talked about that. And I think that those things help offset any headwinds we'll have from incremental reopening in 2022. All right. Well, well, great thoughts there. I want to move over to the other part of this podcast uh, that I, I find really fascinating, which is the cash cow of the internet, which is digital advertising. You know, when you talk about digital advertising, it's it's really been a story of the two leaders, Facebook and Google, duopoly, if you will. But is there room for more players to, to come and maybe challenge that duopoly like Amazon or, or maybe, you know, a couple of the other companies that are starting to get their act together like Twitter or Pinterest? Or is it is it still going to be a duopoly as we we look forward? Erica, maybe I'll, uh, I'll turn that question over to you. Sure. So I would frame the digital advertising market as a winner-take-most market. So to frame some numbers around this, total digital advertising spend globally, excluding China in 2021, is expected to be about $350 billion. If we aggregate the three leading platforms, Google, expected to generate $175 billion in ad revenue this year, Facebook, $115 billion in ad revenue, and Amazon, $30 billion. These three players capture 92% of the market. So that set just goes to show you how much share is consolidated in the major platforms. And certainly that scale is large. It's not a tremendous surprise when you just consider the massive scale of the users in these platforms. Facebook has $2.1 billion daily active users across its family of apps. YouTube has an estimated 2 billion monthly active users. And the primary consideration for advertisers is eyeballs, right? Advertisers go to where the users are, where where usage and, and users are. And so I do think that there is, there is room for other companies to, to scale. Amazon's a per- perfect example. Their advertising business has grown by 3x in the last in just the last 3 years. So it's certainly possible. I think the key ingredients for taking share in digital advertising are back to that point of eyeballs. You need scale of users, you need to be able to connect the usage on your platform with commercial and buying intent and then you also need to have robust ad tech and ad formats that enable both small and large advertisers to spend on your platform. So it's really kind of those three ingredients and each one of them is difficult to achieve. So so I would say that capturing share of the advertising market is certainly possible, but getting those combination of factors right is quite difficult. Now, Eric, I'm going to stay with you really quickly and, and talk about digital advertising. I mean, why is it so important to companies? Is it because they can personalize that advertising and have a much higher hit rate of converting to a sale? What is it about digital advertising? And then maybe to, to bring it a step further, what innovations are we seeing today and, and what do you expect in this space going forward? So digital advertising is important, in my view, for two primary reasons. Again, goes back to, to users. Where are people spending their time? I think if we all just even look at our our daily routines now versus five years ago or even ten years ago, we're spending vastly more time on our on our on our phones, on our connected TVs, on our laptops and computers, just on these digital surfaces. So as engagement has moved more and more online, that just broadens the the appeal of of 
reaching those users while they're online. The second thing goes to your point on, on targetability. Think back to the penny savers or to billboards. Those are kind of what we consider to be brand advertising. You kind of get your brand message out. And we know those work. We know, we know, for example, television works in terms of driving sales. However, digital, because there's been a number of ways to kind of track users, be it cookies, some of the stuff we're going to talk about with Apple and its IDFA identifier is another example. But there's been uh, a number of ways not only to reach users online, but also tailor targeted messages to users and track the conversion of those ads that's really not comparable to kind of the targetability and measurability of other mediums in advertising. Yeah, I've got to admit, whenever I'm in Instagram, I feel like everything that they're advertising to me, I I would actually buy, uh, I tend not to buy things, but I feel like everything was at least applicable to something that would be interesting to me. It's, It's quite amazing if you think about it. But, you know, it kind of brings up an interesting headwind that's recently developed about privacy. And you alluded to it just a second ago, Erica. How much of a headwind, of a factor of the headwind around privacy with Apple's opt-in iOS update and the growing digital advertising world? I mean, how much of a factor is that, Mike? Do you you have any views on that? I think in the short run, and you certainly saw it in Facebook's results this past quarter, that Apple's changes will make it more difficult to target ads and to measure their impacts and also make it more difficult to change user behavior with them. Longer term, I think that the companies like the Googles and the Facebooks that have big databases of how users have behaved will be able to use statistical analysis to identify who you are and even without the tracking. And then they'll just simply go back to where they were before. They know who you are. They know what ads to give to you. And they'll be very effective once again. So the bigger players will get bigger, essentially. The bigger players who've got the big information and the skill with statistical analysis, yes, will get bigger. Erica, any, anything else to add? I would echo Mike's points. I mean, what, what the Apple changes do, essentially they delay and restrict the type of data that advertisers are able to see on iOS users. This does impact everyone in the industry at the same time. No, one, not getting, no one's getting an exception to these, these rules with a few, few detailed caveats in that in, in, in how Apple's treating its own surfaces, but we, won't, we don't have to go down that rabbit hole. But these, these changes are impacting everyone at once. There is a level playing field to some, to some extent, but the way that, that advertisers are compensating for these changes is by investing heavily in machine learning, probabilistic modeling, things that enable them to preserve that targetability and measurability without that same level of data from Apple, which is kind of a capital intensive endeavor, requires a lot of engineers and it requires kind of spend on um, algorithms, things, things of this nature to sort of retain or preserve that, that loop. And to Mike's point, the, uh, the advertisers with more scale of revenue have more to invest. And, and I do believe that, you know, in that way, the strong will kind of continue to get stronger with changes like this. Well, great, great. Well, I feel like I could talk about these topics for hours, but uh, we're coming up on our allotted time. So I just want to give Erica and Mike, both of you, a sincere thanks for providing us with such a 
not only comprehensive, but an insightful background on the streaming and digital advertising ecosystem. I know I've personally gained a much better perspective on the space after our talk. So both of you, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. And I want to say thank you to all the listeners who've taken time out of your busy days to listen to this podcast. I think, I hope that you've found this podcast as interesting as I have. And we hope that you enjoy the time home with your families and have a safe upcoming Thanksgiving holiday. We hope you'll continue to join us for the 2021 podcast finale next month when we discuss the market and economic outlook for 2022. As always, we welcome any comments, questions, and suggestions, which you can email us at podcast at clearbridge.com. Take care. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of November 16th, 2021, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole, and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics reference have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither Clearbridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.